0: This morning, Mike already read uh, a good portion of the scripture that I'm going to be sharing to you from, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at uh, the 24th chapter of Luke, starting in verse 13. And we're going to talk about Jesus, and uh, we're going to look in the New Testament and see uh, something about Jesus in the Old Testament as well. We're starting a series this morning called Better, Jesus is Greater. And uh, could go in a lot of directions with that. And I thank Mike for trusting me to start the, ser- the series off this morning. But this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus is the better hope that we can have in our lives. We all have hope, and, and I think we can all relate to this message today. But the scripture uh, there in Luke 24 says, Now, on that day, there were uh, two of them going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I'm going to stop there for right now. We're going to keep on going as we go throughout the message. But this morning, I want to key in on that, that scripture right there where they said, But we had hoped in Jesus. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem us. And I want to tell you this morning, he truly is. Maybe you've never heard the full story of Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Teblialdo Ponzi. He had a long name. He was born in the late 1800s in Italy, and in the early 1920s, he came up with a money making plan. He figured out that you could buy international reply coupons in other countries cheaper than you could buy them here in the United States and exchange them at the Postal Service. So he went around and he found a bunch of people, and he said, I tell you what, if you give me your money, I'll go buy these coupons in other countries and we'll redeem them here. And we'll make money off of it, and I'll give you a return on your investment. And they said, hey, that's pretty good. So people started giving him money, and he would buy the coupons overseas and have them shipped over here and redeem them and and cash them in, and he would split the dividends with his investors. But then something happened. He couldn't find enough of these coupons to keep his plan working. But people were so interested in it that they wanted to keep giving them his money. So he kept on taking it. And so what he would do is he would get a group of investors, take their money, use that to pay off the previous group of investors, keep some profit for himself, and go find more people to invest. $20 million, and nearly one year later, the plan finally collapsed on him. He got caught, and he got put in jail. And that's where we get the term Ponzi scheme from today, from the scheme run by Mr., as he was easily called, Charles Ponzi. Now, a more modern version of that would be the story of Bernard Madoff, who actually uh, got billions of dollars this way. But these were con men. These were guys that their whole thing was that they would promise you extraordinary benefits if you just buy into their plan. But what did you end up with in the end? You were left standing there staring at the ground going, well, we hope this guy was the answer to our problems. And so as we meet these disciples on the road to Emmaus, these men are wondering what just happened. They said, we hoped that Jesus was the answer to our problems, but now he's dead. Was he a con man? Was he crazy? Was he really who he said he was or or, or was something off about him? They believed him. They bought into it. Jesus called them and and, and said to his disciples, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they bought it. Hook, line, and sinker, right? And they gave up everything. They left their jobs, they left their homes, and they followed him. These two men, we don't know how long they had been following Jesus, but they were considered disciples of Jesus as well, not part of the core group of 12. But there were a lot of people that followed him around. And this was Sunday after Jesus had been crucified the Friday before. And their hope has been crushed. Have you ever had an experience where somebody let you down? Somebody promised you that they'd do something. And either they wouldn't or they couldn't do it. You trusted them. you, You bought into the plan and you found yourself disappointed. That's how these guys felt. Can you kind of picture there for a moment, these two men walking along the road, their heads down, just in defeat. What are we going to do now? So that's where we pick up on the story this morning. These men had hoped that Jesus could do something, for great, uh, could do something great for them. And maybe today you can say you felt that way. That maybe Jesus could do something for you. I want you to know today that Jesus is better than our hopes and our expectations. He's better than our plans. And everything that he's promised us, he will do. As we started there in Luke 24, it said that there were two of them and they were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. That's when Jesus appeared and, and they didn't recognize him. And he said, hey, tell me what's going on. And they said, are you the only one who hasn't heard these things? Jesus said, what things? And this was their reply in verse 19. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. In your note-taking guide there, you'll see the first blank. It says, our plans, and the answer is this, our plans define our hope. Our plans define our hope. How many of you like vacations? Anybody? Troy and Debbie are back there going, us. How many? How many cruises have you been on since I got here? Twelve. Seems like it. And they're planning on going on more, right? Yeah, they love going on vacations. Well. Um, vacations are great, and I don't mean just taking the uh, the night off and going to a hotel in the next town over so you don't have to clean your house for a night. I'm talking about the real vacations the the five day, you know four nights, five days, all inclusive, all you can eat, all you want to do, or all you don't have to do kind of vacations. Do, y- do y'all like those? Those are are pretty popular. If you turn on the TV and watch it, uh, you'll probably see a a cruise line advertising something. They love to show those Disney cruises on the kids' shows so that all the kids go, Mom, Dad, can we go there? I wish. So when you go on this kind of trip, what do these places offer? Sandy beaches, warm sun, people to wait on you hand and foot, Everything that you can imagine to eat, uh, to drink, to do, even the chance to do absolutely nothing while somebody else does it for you. Isn't that a great vacation? Now, the thing about vacations is that they want you to feel like you're the most special guest they have while you're there. Why do they treat us like this? Because I don't know about you, but I don't get to live that way every day. Do you? Is your life a permanent vacation? Not in that sense, uh, at least not that I've ever experienced. But those are the things that we want for ourselves. Those are a taste of what, if we could have everything we wanted, it would be something like that. We all have plans in life for what we want to do, to have, and to achieve. Vacations are just the taste of those things that we really want to have. That's why we enjoy vacations so much. But in our everyday lives... We have plans that we don't want to be just temporary things. We have plans that are big deals for us. I plan to graduate college in May. My wife is doing everything she can to make sure that that plan comes true. She is poking me every day. Some of you maybe are planning to retire and have all the free time in the world, right? Every retired person I've ever talked to has said, man, I'm busier now that I'm retired than I ever was. Maybe some of you young folks are are saying, one day I'd like to fall in love and get married and raise a family. We all have plans. We all have things that we hope for in our lives. There's there's things that we want to see come true. And I I was thinking about that as I got ready for the sermon. And I found three common themes in our plans. Three common things that define what our hope is. Number one, we all want to be free from suffering. Number two, we all want to have enough. And number three, we all want to be well-loved. While each of our plans might have different details, if you think about it, those three things kind of fit into everything that we want for ourselves. These disciples on the road to Emmaus, I'm sure they wanted the same things too. Our plans define our hope Because whatever we plan for in our lives, we have to find a way for those plans to work out. The two men, they wanted to be free from suffering. They wanted to have enough. They wanted to be well-loved. And so they found something that they thought could give that to them, that could help those plans come true, and it was Jesus. And so they placed their hope in him. They had seen him fulfill the plans for the others in these three areas. So let's look at those real quick. Suffering. In Mark chapter 2, we see a story about Jesus at home and he's teaching. And a big crowd shows up. And there's so many people there that nobody else can get into the house. There's people standing around outside. And in the middle of this, some people show up with one of their friends. And he's on a mat because he's paralyzed. So they've got four people carrying this guy. Uh, and, and he's paralyzed, so he can't do anything on his own. And, and so they want to get this guy in front of Jesus. They can't get through the crowd. They, they, they try to bulldoze their way in. They can't get in. It's so crowded, they don't know what to do. So they come up with a plan, and they go up on the roof, and they, they dig a hole in the roof, and they lower this guy through the roof right in front of Jesus. That'd get your attention, wouldn't it, if, if, if we started hearing a noise up there. And some, suddenly somebody started being lowered down. At the end of this story, what we see is that Jesus looks at this man who's paralyzed and can't walk. And he says, take up your mat and you can go home. And he gets up, he rolls up his mat, the paralyzed man does, rolls up the mat. And the four people who carried him there didn't have to carry him home because he could walk. And Jesus freed this guy from his suffering. In Luke chapter 5, there's a story of a man who had an incurable skin disease called leprosy. You know, today we, we worry about that necrotizing fasciitis, the flesh eating bacteria. You know, you hear about that on the news from time to time. Sounds pretty scary. Well, leprosy was kind of their version of that same thing, and it was very contagious. You couldn't touch somebody who had it or you could get it, and if they touched something and then you touched the same thing, it could be spread that way as well. So if you had this, it was incurable, and it meant you couldn't be with your family or your community, and this. This man who had leprosy sees Jesus and he comes up and he falls on the ground in front of Jesus and says, Jesus, if you want to, I know you can heal me. And Jesus said, be clean. Jesus reached down and touched him and said, be clean. You didn't touch somebody with leprosy, remember? But Jesus was willing to touch the guy. And in the midst of his suffering, Jesus reached out and touched him and healed him. And it said he was immediately healed. There's another story, even better than that. Jesus is out teaching, and a guy comes up to Jesus. In, in uh, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 9, it says this, and he asks Jesus, Would you come heal my daughter? And Jesus says, Yeah, I'll go with you. And so he's on the way to this guy's house, and as they're on the way to the, his house for Jesus to heal his daughter, a bunch of people come up and say, Hey, hey, you tell Jesus that, that he doesn't have to come. It's too late. Your daughter's already dead. Jesus said, no, no, I'll go to the house with you. And when he got to the house, he went in and he said, your daughter's not dead. She's just asleep. And he reached down and she really had died. But Jesus reached down and and took her by the hand and said, get up out of the bed. And she got up and she was well. Jesus touched people in the midst of their suffering. And even if the two men in our story weren't there, they knew people who were. They knew people who had seen it with their own eyes and could tell you all about it. They could go see the paralyzed man who was now walking. They could go see the leper who was now clean. And they could go see the little girl who was alive that had once been dead. So they said, I want my life to be free from suffering. Jesus did it for others. I believe he can do it for me. They also wanted to have enough. In Mark chapter 6... We see Jesus is teaching to a large crowd. He kind of was out in the wilderness, kind of trying to get away and and have a little quiet time, and everybody just followed him out there. And there were 5,000 men plus women and children with him, and Jesus was teaching these people because they they just went to where he was, and he taught them all day long, and, and they were starting to get tired, and they were starting to get hungry, and Jesus was concerned for them, and Jesus looked at his disciples and said, hey guys... They're getting pretty hungry. Won't you find them some food? And they said, "We could work for, we could work for a year and not be able to feed this many people. What do you want us to do?" He said, "Well, what do you have?" They looked around, and I call it the Jewish Happy Meal. It was five loaves of bread and two fish. And you might be thinking of you know Pullman loaf like from the store. It's more like a rolls. Okay, I call it the Jewish Happy Meal. It was a kid's lunch. And they said, "Well, this is all we got." Maybe they were trying to tell Jesus it was, it was hopeless. But Jesus, being a God of hope like he is, says, well, hand it to me. Let me see what I can do with it. And it said that he began to break the bread. And he began to divide up the fish. And he began to hand it out to people. They divided it up into groups of 50 and 100. And they were handing all this out. And Jesus prayed over it. And he was breaking it up. And he was handing it out. And it just kept on going. And the next thing you know, 5,000 men plus the women and children who were with them have eaten everything that they wanted. They're full. And they said, whew, I think we're going to go on home now. I got some leftovers. Jesus said, gather up all the leftovers. Guess what? Out of one little boy's lunch, he fed 5,000 men plus all the women and children with him. They had 12 basketfuls left over. Jesus was pretty good at making sure that we had enough. Went to a wedding with his mom, John chapter 2 says. Went to a wedding with his mom, and they ran out of wine. Okay? Weddings back then, you had a big old party. You had a lot of guests, and wine was what they had to drink. Jesus goes to this party. They run out of wine, and his mom must have known the people who were getting married, and she was worried, and she said, Jesus, they're out of wine. Would you do something about this? And she looked around at the people that were helping to serve, and she said, y'all do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And then he said something really weird. He said, hey... You know those buckets over there that we wash our feet in? Why don't you fill those up with water? And, and, and fill that up with water for me real quick. So they did. They went out and they filled these pots up with water. And they were the foot washing pots, but they filled them up with water. And Jesus said, draw some of that out and go take it to the head waiter. Tell him this is your new drink. And took it to him. And the guy takes a sip of it and he goes, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Don't you know you're supposed to serve the good stuff first and then you serve all the bad stuff after the good stuff is gone? I figured it up one time. It was over 120 gallons of wine that Jesus uh, had to make up that day. I I figured it up. I I had to find a conversion table and it was something near a 1,000 servings of wine or something like that. Jesus was good at making sure that people had enough. He found people in need, and he was able to take what he had and turn it into enough. He was also good at helping people be well-loved. There's a story in uh, Luke chapter 8 about a man in a graveyard. Have you all ever known anybody that lived in a graveyard? Of course not. You go, that's crazy. That's where this guy lived. He lived out among the tombs. They said that he was possessed by demons. He ran around naked all the time, and he would take stones and cut himself with them. They tried to bind him up with chains to to do something with him, and he'd just break the chains. And it said he'd be out in the graveyard all night long just screaming. This, This guy was in bad shape. There's not the first one of you would want this kind of guy as a neighbor, right? Lives out in the graveyard. And Jesus came along, and this guy saw Jesus, and he cried out. And Jesus freed him of the demons. The next thing we see in the story is after Jesus freed this man from the demons, that he's sitting at Jesus' feet, calm, dressed, and saying, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. And Jesus said, no, what I want you to do go home. Go back to where you're loved. Jesus cares about our suffering. He really does. The Bible demonstrates that he met people in their suffering, and he took care of their suffering. Jesus cares whether or not we have enough. We can see that in the Scriptures. Jesus wants us to be well-loved. He wants us to have a place where we fit. He wants us to have people in our lives that care about us. He wants us to be the kind of people who can be loved and love one another. He really does care about those things. And these men were walking along the road to Emmaus, and they had these kind of things on their heart. They had hoped that Jesus was the answer, but now Jesus is dead. And they're saying, we had plans, we hoped that Jesus was enough, what do we do? I want to tell you today, it's not wrong to hope that Jesus will do these things for you. But we have to understand that those things aren't the greatest part of why Jesus came. He isn't the, those things aren't the greatest reason that we hope in him. The second thing in your bulletin you'll see there is that our reality interprets our hope. Jesus is talking to these guys and they, they say, he asked them, tell me what, what went on with this Jesus guy? Remember, they didn't know it was Jesus. They said, well, our, the chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. Boy, their reality is just, man, it's all up and down right now. They're not sure what to do with their hope. My wife and I have been married for probably seven, seven and a half years. And one day she walked into the room and she said something that absolutely stunned me. After seven and a half years of trying, after giving up hope that it would ever happen, my wife looked at me and said, I'm pregnant. We went to the doctor a few uh, few days later, and she was 14 weeks pregnant when we found out. It was that unexpected. Months go by. We go through this pregnancy. She goes through it. She did the work, I promise. She delivers a 10-pound, one-ounce baby boy. What a blessing. Natural, too. She's a strong woman. Got to watch out for her. So we have this beautiful boy, Samuel, and, uh, you know, for this child we have prayed, and, and, and that's why we named him Samuel from the story of Samuel in the Old Testament. And uh, my, my kids, my, my older kids, they say, you know, you know he's your favorite. I say, no, no, that's not true. They say, no, you know. Special little boy, an unexpected blessing, and, and, and just this beautiful, happy, healthy little boy And, I mean, I could fill the screen with pictures of him. But after a little while, something wasn't right. Christy said, he's choking all the time when I feed him. I'm going to have to switch to a bottle and formula. And so she did, and and she switched to a bottle and formula, and he still was choking all the time. And she would go to the pediatrician, you know, when they're that little, they have to have checkups, like, constantly. And she would go for checkups and stuff with the doctor, and she would say, he, he just keeps choking all the time. Oh, you're just not holding him right. Get a different nipple. Get a different bottle. Do this. Do that. Do... You're just not doing something right. Well, don't tell a mama that nothing's wrong when something's wrong. She wouldn't give up. Christy said, no, something is wrong. She began to try to figure it out, and she began asking questions. And finally, a doctor said, look, I'll just send you to a pediatric specialist, and they can figure it out because I don't know what it is. He goes to the pediatric specialist. The specialist says, well, let's do a swallow study. They did a swallow study, and they said, oh, no, something is really, really wrong with your son. Every time he swallows, the, the, the milk is going in his lungs, okay? It's called aspiration, and it's very dangerous. He ended up in the hospital at five months old. He ends up in the hospital, and they come in. They say, we're going to put a feeding tube in for your son, and uh, this one's actually going to go past his stomach all the way to his small intestine. You try telling a five-month-old that they can't eat or drink anything for five days and their stomach's going to be completely empty, he didn't get it. He didn't like it, and we didn't like it either, and the doctors came in. I still remember the pediatrician standing there in the doorway explaining to us, and she said, listen, children in the situation that your son's in, it's probably going to take five or six years of him being on a feeding tube to figure out what's going on and why he's, he's messed up. We don't know what it is, so just get ready. Get ready get ready. Those are pretty heavy things. But what happened was that one night, this was over the weekend, we were waiting for the doctor, to, the specialist to come in on Monday. Well, they had these little red wagons all over the hospital to carry your kids around in. It's a children's hospital. So we propped him up on some pillows and we we're going to get him out of the room. We got permission to leave the room for about an hour just to, to just a change the scenery and as we were walking around the hospital, we were in a high observation unit. And I saw the room next to us. And I saw the same mother lay, leaning over the bed of the same child that had been there when we got there. And I went a little further and I saw a child laying in the bed with all kinds of hoses and tubes hooked up and parents sitting around looking sad. I went a little further down the hall and I saw parents putting on full surgical garb just to be able to walk into the room with their kids As we continue walking around the hospital that night, every time we turned the corner, we saw parents with kids in wheelchairs, parents whose kids were deformed or missing limbs, parents of children who would probably never leave the hospital. In fact, in the time that we were there, I don't know how many parents saw their children lose their lives. Do you know how many of us planned for our kids to be there? Do you know how many of us planned for our kids to be sick? Do you know how many of us had our hopes just sitting out there and they were being crushed by our reality? God gave me perspective that night. Our our reality wasn't quite as bad as theirs. But it wasn't what we expected either. Our reality, thankfully, would be eased. Because the doctor walked in on Monday morning and said, I figured it out and I'll do surgery tomorrow and I'll fix it. Five months, not five years, five months, he was on a feeding tube. And they say, now it's gone. They fixed it. God fixed it. That's who fixed it. But God taught me a lesson that night. We look at our hope and light of our reality. These guys were looking at their hope in Jesus. And the reality that they saw was that Jesus was dead. How do we react when our hopes are dashed because reality has hit? Do we walk away? Do we give up like the disciples in the story? Were our hopes wrong? Did God fail us? What, what are we supposed to think in these times? Well, these guys are walking about seven miles. From my house to six mile is seven miles. I was trying to figure out where's seven miles from my house so I could have a good point of reference. I looked it up on the map. Six mile. Which is kind of weird because six miles is supposed to be six miles away, right? Because it's certainly not six miles big. But if you imagine walking from basically Walmart over here in Central to Six Mile, that's how far they had to go, all right? And it's kind of hilly terrain too. And so it's not a brief journey. It was probably three, four hours maybe. And we don't know how far along in the journey they were when Jesus showed up with them. Well, we know they had a while to walk, and they they probably were not you know running this like a marathon. They were sad. They were looking down at the ground, you know, I just kind of think of Eeyore, woe is me, thanks for noticing. You know, these guys, reality has hit really hard. They're leaving Jerusalem. What was in Jerusalem? All the rest of the disciples. That's where everybody was gathered, huddled up, and they're leaving. They're like, you know what? This didn't work out. We're going home, and we're just going to have to go home and figure things out. We don't really know what to think. We're confused. Our hopes have been dashed. We're not really sure what to go on. They looked at Jesus and they said, uh, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, but they killed him. You know what they were saying? They were saying that to them, it looked like Jesus was a failure. That he wasn't going to be able to provide the hope That they had. How could a dead man ever redeem Israel? They don't do much. They just lie around, right? How could a dead man do anything for us now? And so they didn't see how they could hope in him anymore. And they gave up. As I walked the hospital that night, I doubt any of those parents there expected. In the beginning, what they would face. They had to interpret their hope through their reality. Most of them had plans of seeing their kids grow up and be happy and making something of themselves. But for many of them, the reality was that their plans would never work out that way. It would not be unreasonable for some to say that their reality destroyed their hope. What about you? Have you ever had something in your life that made you feel that way? That you thought you could trust God to take care of it? That, that you said, God, I've got some suffering, and, and, and God, you, you, you've done it for other people. God, I just need you to be here for me in this. Maybe you've said, God, I don't have enough. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I don't know how I'm going to keep the lights on. The bill collectors are coming. They're going to cut my power off. And I don't have any groceries in the refrigerator. What am I supposed to do? God, can you please help me? Maybe you've had people in your life that you loved and you loved dearly and they didn't love you back and you felt rejected and you felt despised and you you say, God, I thought you were supposed to take care of this. And maybe that's making your hope in Christ diminish. Maybe you're wondering if Christ was really a failure or a con man like the disciples were trying to figure out that day. But let me tell you this, he is neither of those things. He is Lord. Don't let your reality crush your hope in Jesus Christ because he's better than our realities. You know what? As Jesus is walking along with these people, when they said, we had hoped in him, but he's dead. He didn't say, all right, well, (laughs) uh, too bad for you. I guess I'll just move on. Jesus said, you know what? Walk with me a little further. Let me explain a few things. So walk with me just a little bit further as we finish up our story here. The third thing in your bulletin, you'll look there, is that God's plan redefines our hope. Yeah, reality interprets our hope, and sometimes we we put our hope in things that that don't work out. But God's plan redefines our hope. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then it says this in verse 27 beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As Jesus went down the road with these two guys, he said, Don't you get it? It's been right there in front of you all along. How slow you are to pick up on these things. Didn't Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And they're going, hmm. Maybe he did. And Jesus said, here, let me show you. So he turned to what we call the Old Testament. To them, it was the only thing they had. It was just the scriptures. and He he, he went all the way back to, to Moses and the prophets, and the law, and he showed them what the scriptures said about him. I led the Bible in 90 days last uh, fall, and we read all the way through the Old Testament, and some of those of you who were in that class, you know, y- you can attest to it. In the Old Testament, there are some really difficult passages to read because it's just real repetitious, it's lots of numbers and things like this. It's, it's, it's hard to understand at times, but once you've read it, and once you see it, you can see Christ all throughout the Old Testament. That's what this message is about today, Jesus in the Old Testament. He's all throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, um, God is showing us who He is, who we are, what He expects from us, and what He will do for us. Now, I don't know exactly what Jesus said to those men that day. I, I really wish I did. It would be the ultimate evangelism tool. Well, this is how Jesus said it. Mike, wouldn't you like to have that? I don't know what he said, but if I had to guess, he probably went back to Isaiah 53. I want to read this for you Isaiah chapter 53. It's a short chapter, 12 verses. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty that attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom the people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their sins. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We all want to be free from suffering. Do you know what Jesus did so that we could be free from suffering? He suffered for us. We all want to be well loved. We want to be accepted. And do you know what Jesus did to make that possible for us? He came and he lived a life in which he was despised and rejected. A life in which he taught about the things of God and he blessed others. And yet the way that he was responded to is that he was nailed to a cross and executed. We all want to have enough. And for us to have enough, Jesus left heaven and came to the earth. And he lived life as a commoner. He was so poor that when he was born, he had to be literally born in a barn, raised by a common man with calluses on his hands. He lived a life just like you and me so that he could set us free from our sins. Yes, he doesn't want us to suffer, so he bore our sufferings. Yes, he wants us to have enough, so he gave up his abundance. Yes, he wants us to be well-loved, so he was despised for our sake. But even greater than that is the better plan of God that he would take away our sins and redeem not just Israel, not just these two disciples, but all of us. That's the better plan of God. And as these men walked along the road to Emmaus with Jesus, he explained these things to them, and they began to understand that he was exactly who he said he was. He wasn't a con man, he wasn't a fake, and he wasn't a failure. He was the Savior. And they finally realized it. And they got so excited about it, you know what they did? They had walked seven miles home. They went the whole seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell everybody else. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked about these things? I have a question for you. Maybe your heart is burning today. And I've been praying all week that your heart would burn with an understanding of who Jesus was this morning. If you need a better hope, I want to tell you that it can be found in Jesus Christ. There are people in this room who can tell you how God has taken care of their suffering. There are people in this room who can tell you how God has given them enough. There are people in this room who can tell you how much God has made them feel loved and accepted. And that is tremendously great. But I want you to know that there are those of us in this room all around you who can tell you that God's better plan, even better than all of that, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. For God so loved the world, this is His plan, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. This morning, if you need hope, I offer it to you in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Stand with me this morning as we pray. I want us to all... Just kind of close our eyes and bow our our heads. And as we do, has God been speaking to you this morning? Do you need the hope that Jesus Christ gives you through his death and resurrection? Do you need that forgiveness that he offers? Do you need the better hope of God's plan through Jesus Christ? If you do, pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for being our hope. Thank you for sending Jesus to live and serve on this earth, but then to die for our sins. Father, give us that hope that we need. Redefine our hope through Jesus Christ. Father, when we suffer, when we have need, when we feel rejected, may we think about Christ and what he did and understand that you are still with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.